0: The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. My name is Barry Pett, and I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer. And, and today, again, I have the privilege of filling in for Jeff, who is on vacation with his family, and he's in Washington, D.C. He had an opportunity to go out there with his Extended family, and so he's got a great opportunity out there. So, um, even though Jeff's not here, we're going to continue in our study of First Corinthians, and today we're going to be looking at chapter twelve, verses one through eleven. Now, this text is is one of the primary texts in Scripture that addresses the topic of of spiritual gifts. Um, I'll tell you that you know preparing a sermon on spiritual gifts was was challenging and and somewhat humbling because it. As you study, you see that there seems to be as many beliefs and interpretations concerning spiritual gifts as there are brands of cereal on the cereal aisle. Um, You know, and even Thursday night, I was at my my missional community, and we were sharing with the guys to pray for me, and we'd be preaching this Sunday, and... And we started talking a little bit about you know about spiritual gifts and how it you know how it all relates and and one of the guys in the group said yeah you know my experience is that anytime there's been a sermon on spiritual gifts, um, someone ends up leaving the church, and so so that was encouraging and uh, <laughs> no pressure there right? Um, so you know, to be clear, our goal today is is not going to be to provide an exhaustive doctrinal position um, on the gifts of the Spirit. It is simply going to be to address gifts as it applies to this passage of Scripture and then examine what it means for us as as individuals and as a faith family. Now, I do think it's important, um, so someone doesn't leave, uh, to note that before we dive into this text, that though the beliefs and interpretations on spiritual gifts are widely varied, I think I can clearly say that few, if any, orthodox congregations would consider spiritual gifts to be a primary doctrine. Which, and what I mean by that is that it is not on the same level as things like the deity of Christ, substitutionary atonement, the inerrancy of Scripture, and, and things like that. I, I believe that for the most part, it's best considered as a, a tertiary or third kind of level doctrine. Meaning that that even within this faith family, we can have differing beliefs about about spiritual gifts without it negatively impacting our unity or our identity as a church. So um, with those disclaimers, let's look at our text today. So please stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one in the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Pray with me. Father, We come to you today in a spirit of humility and of reverence and God of deep gratitude. I stand before you today humbled at the honor and the responsibility to to rightly handle and communicate your word to these people today. God, would you guard my heart and thoughts to speak only the truth of your word? And Father, will you fill our hearts today with with profound gratitude that because of the great news of your gospel, that you have not just saved us from your wrath and adopted us as your children, but you have gifted us in many wonderful ways in order that we may bring glory to you and encourage others to pursue you with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength and to make you the supreme treasure in our lives. And all this we pray in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so in chapter 12, Paul continues what he's been doing throughout the letter, and as particularly since chapter 7, where he is responding to the Corinthians' inquiries that they had sent him earlier. Now, in this passage, the same as many of the others, we don't know exactly what their question was to Paul. But what we do see is that Paul doesn't waste any time letting them know how important it is to him that they are clear in their understanding of spiritual gifts. As I, as I did some research, I saw, realized, saw that there's only three times in all of his New Testament letters that he makes a point about saying something to the effect of, I do not want you to be uninformed about this. The first one is in Romans 11:25 concerning God's plan for Israel where he says, "Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in." So, in this passage he wants them to be clear that just because the gospel has been a has been available to the Gentiles, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned Jewish people. And he wants them to be clear on that. The other example we see besides our text today is in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, where Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So in this passage, Paul wants to make sure that we as believers are clear about the second coming of Christ, and we're also very clear about what happens when we die. So if I stated at the beginning that that spiritual gifts are not a primary doctrine, then why is it so important to Paul that they are not uninformed about it? And I think the answer is clear from our text is that it was already creating divisions and false pride within the church. And if it wasn't clearly addressed and they didn't have clarity on this issue, it would literally destroy their church. So our text today can be divided into two sections. We have verses one through three, which gives a test for true spirituality, and then verses 4 through 11 show the source and the purpose of the spiritual gifts. So I think to understand the context of, of verse 1 through 3, it's important to go back even briefly uh, to remember the spiritual culture in Corinth. Jeff has talked about this quite a bit in, in other texts, but um, I think it's good to just touch it once more, one more time. You see, Paul realized that there was a there was this dangerous coming together of multiple religious beliefs and practices that, when combined, would bring disharmony and chaos to this church. I mean, the first that we see is the pagan worship of idols that was characterized by ecstasy, not the drug, but but a frenzied state of worship that that people that it induced through dances and chants, and it resulted in this kind of frenzied state like. Um, that led to sexual orgies with with temple prostitutes. Um, And we've talked, Jeff has talked about that in in the past. And then we throw into the stew this other prevalent religious belief of Gnosticism that was prevalent at this time, which believed that the physical body was evil. Gnostics sought a, a mystical knowledge, not merely knowing about something or someone, but a mystical knowledge of gnosis, as they call it, that comes from within each of us. You see, Gnostics believed that Jesus had a physical body, and since he had a physical body, he couldn't be God. And thus, he was not resurrected from the dead, and like the rest of us, was evil and accursed. So when you mix all these pagan beliefs and traditions into a church that, as we saw in chapter 1, was not lacking in any gifts of the Spirit, And they were especially intrigued by the miraculous gifts of tongues, healing, and prophecy because in so many ways they mirrored the ecstatic worship that they came from. And then you put all that together and you have the ingredients for a hot combustible mess. I mean, there were people in this body who seemed religious because they embraced the ecstatic worship of the culture but instead of orgies, that mimic the, they mimicked the gifts of the spirits and especially the gift of tongues. But through it, they were proclaiming Gnostic teachings. So it would seem that the question to Paul was essentially this. How do we know who is a real believer in the midst of all this? If you look at it uh, in the in, in beginning of this, he says now concerning spiritual gifts, that word really is that word there is gifts is not in the original interpretation. It's really the word spirituals, which kind of broad opens up to a broader aspect of this rather than specifically just the gifts. And Paul's response to this question is awesome and it applies just as much today as it did then. Because you see, basically he tells them in verses two and three to not judge the credibility of a believer by his practice of worship but by his object of worship. You see, true followers of Christ cannot and will not deny his deity or lordship. And unbelievers, though they may mimic religious practices, they're still spiritually dead in their trespasses and cannot glorify Jesus as Lord of their lives. You see, cultural Christianity is not a a 21st century issue of the Bible Belt. It has been undermining churches from the very beginning. I mean, you can, you can raise your hands and clap and dance and speak in tongues and live in church and be as lost as any atheist. It's the same thing that Jesus spoke about so passionately in Matthew 23, where he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness.'" so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the first thing Paul wants the Corinthians to be informed about is what determines true spirituality. And now beginning in verse four, he wants them to be clear about the source and the purpose of spiritual gifts so they're not abusing it. And to do this, he uses kind of a, a scientific approach of, of constants and variables which I'm sure brings back fond memories of your high school chemistry days right <clears throat> but that's the that's the method he chooses to use So <clears throat> in verse 4 we see the first ver- first variable that there are a variety of gifts Now depending on how you categorize them within the New Testament they are listed, up to 25 different gifts. Different people combine them. Some will say there's 20, some say the scripture lists so 15s. I've saw as little as nine. Um, and these are primarily found in our text today, plus Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. However, none of these texts claims to be an exhaustive list. And most are used as examples of spiritual gifts. And one sermon I read by uh, Charles Spurgeon, he talked mostly about the gifts of affluence, experience, influence, prayer, and conversation, which aren't even listed in any of those passages. So I think it's important so we have a framework to, to work within that we first define what a spiritual gift is. The word gift in verse four comes from the Greek word charismata. The "charis" part of the word means grace and the ma portion is just a passive suffix meaning that it is grace given so so these are grace gifts one source defines spiritual gifts as special supernatural enablement or capacity to do the work of god john piper defined it like this he says a spiritual gift is an ability given by the holy spirit to express our faith effectively in word or deed for the strengthening of someone else's faith. Now, in that same sermon, Piper encouraged people not to put too much emphasis on the name of the gift, but on the application. He said this, he said, we must not get hung up on naming our gifts. The thing to get hung up on is, are we doing what we can to strengthen the faith of people around us? So, With that in mind, looking again at verse 4, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So the variable is the gifts, but the constant is the source of the gifts, which is the Holy Spirit. You see, if if we're not careful, it would be really easy to kind of overlook the Trinitarian aspect of this. We see clearly that there is Trinitarian teamwork, and roles that are expressed in this passage. Verse four defines the Holy Spirit's role, which is the distribution of all of the various gifts to believers. He's the source. We see this again in verse 11, which says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, skipping to verse five. In verse five, we see the next variable and constant. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Some translations use the word ministries instead of service. So the point here is that in addition to there being a, a variety of gifts, there's also a variety of ways to utilize or apply any given gift. So, for example, I would say just within this body, I want to say that uh, Skip Richter, Mandy Odom and Russ Daniels all have the gift of teaching. They have all been given by the Holy Spirit the ability to clearly and effectively communicate spiritual truths. Now, Skip uses his gift as a missional community leader and a get trained teacher to build the faith of adults. Mandy uses her gift in building specifically the faith of women in the church. And Russ is uniquely gifted in communi- communicating spiritual truths to children. Same gift, different ministries. And what is the constant? Same Lord. As we see in the New Testament, the word Lord almost always refers to Jesus. So what he's saying is regardless of the gift, regardless of the ministry, just as our sign at the end of the street says, it's all about Jesus. Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the source of the gifts, but Jesus is always the object of the gifts, always. Building each other's faith means that we encourage, inspire, and challenge each other to treasure Jesus more, to obey him more, to follow him better, and to be transformed more into his image. Discipleship is really nothing more than helping others make much of Jesus, as we like to phrase it around here. And then in verse six, we see the third variable and constant. The third variable and constant set that we see in verse six is that there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So what are we talking about here? The word activities here comes from the Greek word andergamata, in which is, this is where we get our word energy. So the picture here is that within any given gift, there's a variety of power or giftedness. So, for example, I would be the first to acknowledge that I am not as gifted at preaching as Jeff is. And, and Jeff would acknowledge that there are many preachers out there who are, who are more gifted than he is. That doesn't mean I don't have the gift of preaching and should never preach, right? I mean, maybe you guys are just lying to me or being kind, but, but you know, many of you have, have shared with me how God has graciously used my preaching to encourage you, to challenge you, and to build your faith. Should I be stressed or upset at myself that I'm not as gifted as Jeff is? No, why? Because as we see in the back of verse six, the constant here is that it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Jesus is the purpose of the gifts. The Holy Spirit is the source of our gifts and God the Father provides the effectiveness or the results of the gift. So to continue my example, I don't have to try to compete or compare myself with Jeff as a preacher. I just need to exercise my gift to the best of my ability and let God use it as he wills. That's why scripture talks about the foolishness of preaching because it's not, it's not my words that has the power. It's God using the words. The preaching is the conduit. The energy comes from God through it that He encourages, He strengthens, He builds our faith. That's the the context of Ephesians 4.12. It says that spiritual gifts are there to equip the saints for works of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. That's why we have gifts. We also see the same thing in verse seven of our text today. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For what? For the common good. So the gifts of the Spirit are given for our common good and for God's soul glory. The problem in Corinth that prompted Paul to write this whole thing is that they were using the spiritual gifts for their own good and their own glory. Paul emphasizes what we typically call the miraculous gifts in these in verses 8 through 10, but it, it appears that the Corinthians saw these as more important gifts than the others because they were, so, they were more mysterious. And this seems to be especially true of the gift of tongues as he devotes an entire chapter to discussing the proper place and the use of tongues two chapters over in 14, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. And you see, this was creating divisions and conflict in the church because they were using the spiritual gifts to rank themselves and create a hierarchy within the body. And Paul's overall goal here is to cut off their self-righteous pride at the knees. So to summarize this section, basically what he's telling them is, is guys, you had nothing to do with the spiritual gifts you received. You had nothing to do with the degree of the gift that you were given. And thirdly, you have nothing to do with the results that come from the use of that gift. And furthermore, all the gifts come from the same source and have the same purpose, so no one gift is any more or any less important than any others. That's the, that's the context of the back part of that where he goes through the gifts, and he points out after each one, but it's from the same spirit. It's all coming from the same place. He's the, there's no hierarchy here. And therefore, he's telling them, guys, get over yourselves. Stop all this silly spiritual one-upmanship and start using the gifts for the purpose they were intended, which is for the common good to equip saints for the works of ministry and building up of the body of Christ. So what does that mean for us? How How does that apply to us today? As I thought about this, I tried to think, you know, if the Apostle Paul were writing a letter to us today about spiritual gifts, what would he observe? What would he say? And as I pondered this, the thought I think that most strongly came to my mind is that his concern would not be as much for our misuse of spiritual gifts as it would be for our disuse of them. You know, as we look at our world today, it is clear that we are quickly losing if we have not already lost our culture. If it was in doubt before this year, this year has certainly confirmed that we are indeed living in a post-Christian society, right? How did this happen? I don't think it was because the secular world started being more secular but rather I think it's because the church has increasingly stopped being the church. As Matthew 5 would put it, we have lost our saltiness and the world sees us as no longer good for anything except to be trampled under their feet. Sound about right? Instead of letting our light shine so that others might see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven, we have instead intentionally tried to dim and hide our lights so that we could blend into the culture, not offend anybody. And we have so vividly seen just this summer between the Supreme Court decisions and the the Planned Parenthood videos that what we are now left with is a very, very, very dark world. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Redeemer, this isn't popular, but I, I think it's time that we acknowledge this is on us. How did we get to a place where families of believers seem to be just as dysfunctional as those who reject faith? How did we get to a place where, according to an article I read in Charisma magazine, that 70% of pastors constantly fight depression and 71% are burned out? And this was from an article entitled, Why Are So Many Pastors Committing Suicide." Our garages and storage units and credit card statements say that we find pleasure in the same things that the world does. Our stomachs display that we find our comfort in the same things that the world does. We decry same-sex marriage while fornication, pornography, adultery, and divorce are rampant in the church, and we all know it. Is it any wonder that the world looks at us in mockery and disdain? And basically says the same thing Christ did to the scribes and Pharisees. You outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And you might be thinking right now, what in the world does that have to do with spiritual gifts? And I would say everything. Everything. If according to Ephesians 4, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to equip the saints for works of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ, then it would appear that we are doing a pretty poor job of equipping and building, right? So what do we do? What do we do? I think if Paul were writing us today, I think he might say something similar to what he told Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7, where he says this, he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see, he's telling Timothy, Timothy was a a godly, he, he was like a son to him but he always struggled because he was timid in his faith. He was afraid to be bold. And and, and, and Paul reminds him, hey, I remember your grandmother Eunice. I remember you have a legacy of bold faith in your family. Timothy, fan it in the flame. Don't be timid. And if ever there was a time that we as believers needed to fan into flame the gifts that God has given us, it is now. So the question then is how? How how do we fan into flame our gifts from God? Now, if you've been at this church for more than two weeks, you know that the answer is first and foremost by reminding ourselves of the gospel, right? I beg you, I know we talk about it every week, every time but I beg us not to let this become cliche. It is the fuel that drives our Christian devotion and our service. When we plant deep in our hearts and we think about who we were outside of Christ and who we now are in Christ because he left the glory of heaven and he took on flesh to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we deserve To pay the price for our sins that we could never pay. And then he was resurrected from the dead to exchange our sin for his righteousness, so that we might be made right with God and spend eternity enjoying the riches of his grace. If that doesn't fan our gift in the flame, nothing will. Nothing will. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, if you are resting in the finished work of Christ, should it ever seem hard to you to be stirred up to serve him? Let the vision of his tearful face come to mind. Behold his thorn-crowned head. Let him turn his back to you and note the gashes the Roman scourges made. Look at him, a spectacle of blood and love And is it possible that any service for him can by you be considered hard? To burn at the stake, if we could do it a thousand times, he clearly deserves that we should make the sacrifice. To give him every pulse and every drop of blood and every breath we breathe, he well deserves it. Glory to his name. He bears all we could ever do a thousand times over. He says, I will not fear to press on you again and again and again that you use the gifts which are in you by actual service to so precious a master. That's what we need. That's that's what our churches need. And it's what our world so desperately wants to see lives that are radically transformed and emptied of selfish gain for the love of our Savior and the good of his church that he so loved and so sacrificed for. A second way to fan our gifts in the flame is by being devoted to the word and to prayer. Now, you've heard it said multiple times from this pulpit, but it bears repeating that if you do not consistently engage in daily scripture, reading and prayer, then it's probably because you have been deceived into falsely believing that you don't need it or it doesn't help. And nothing could be farther from the truth. As we sang today, oh, how we need you. And prayer in Scripture is is how we come to God. It's how we learn about God. It's how we we connect to Him. It's how we fan the gift and the flame. The depth of my love for my wife is is directly related to the depth of my knowledge about her and the intimacy with her and and the time that we share together. And the same is true for God. As Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 so famously says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is a heart that is fanned in the flame. And this can only happen through devoted time in prayer and His Word. And trust me, it will fan into flame the gifts that's been given into you. It will. And thirdly, the third way we fan our gifts into flame is through practice. As I said at the beginning, and we use the Piper quote, it would do well to spend less time trying to name and identify our gifts and more time thinking of what can we do to build up encourage those around us to come to faith and to grow in faith. Determine that you will commit to look for ways to equip and build up others, and you will instinctively find yourself using the gifts that God has given you to accomplish it. You know, I was, I, I was so excited to see the women's blog get started again. That's, that, is, that is such a blessing. I mean, what, what a great use of the gift of writing to build the faith in our ladies and our guys. We read as much as the ladies do. Lori Richter, Mandy Odom, Amy Bowles, Kitty White, Debbie Perkle, several other ladies have effectively implemented this gift for our good, for our common good, and it builds our faith. Many of you here have been, built, have been blessed and built up by my daughter Courtney's use of, her, of creativity and um, using design to create these beautiful visual summaries of sermons each week. How encouraging. What a beautiful gift. She didn't have to sit down and go, hmm, I got to identify the gift. She, used to, she knows she's gifted in, in artistry and she used it to say, I can build the body of Christ with this. Our church runs effectively and efficiently because of the mechanical giftedness of John L., the technical giftedness of Chris Green, the administrative giftedness of my wife, Carolyn, Jim and Kelly Wilkie's gift of hospitality, Matt Odom's gift of finances, and I could go on and on. This just names a few. It's kind of ridiculous the amount of musical giftedness that we have at this church that God has given us that inspires our faith. Are we not encouraged and blessed every week by Kevin's Gifts of talents and and all the musicians and singers. And we've already talked about some of the many gifted teachers here. I mean, I could go on and on. And Scripture tells us, makes it clear that every believer, hear me, every believer has been given gifts. And each of us is not just called, but commanded to be faithful, to utilize the gifts, and the giftedness, giftedness that we're given to make disciples and to make much of Jesus. That's the context of the parable of talents in Matthew 25. The master gave one five talents to another two and to another one, right? The one with five talents used them to make five more. And what did the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The one with two talents used them to make two more and the master said exactly the same thing to him even though he only produced two additional talents instead of five. Why? Because he was faithful with a talent that he was given. The only one that didn't go well for in the parable is the one who's given one talent, right? He chose to bury his talent and produced nothing with it. And then he made a lame excuse for why he did nothing with his talent. And what did the master say to him? You wicked and slothful servant. And then he took the one talent from him and gave it to the one with 10, and the parable ends by saying he cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. This is an ominous parable. I mean, clearly he's not just speaking figuratively here. He's letting us know that there there are eternal consequences at stake. And and to be clear, this this passage is not talking about works-based salvation. Rather, it is pointing out the attributes of a true follower of Christ. You see, you cannot legitimately claim to be a follower of Christ and not desire to glorify Him with your life by helping others come to faith or grow in faith. Do you hear me? You cannot legitimately claim to be a follower of Christ and not desire to glorify Him with your life by helping others come to faith or grow in their faith. It won't happen. That's the message Jesus emphatically wanted Peter to know in John 21, where three times he asked Peter, do you love me? And when Peter, becoming increasingly insulted each time, answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus' response to him each time was simply, feed my sheep. The call to sheep feeding is not an exclusive call to Peter, but to all who claim to love Jesus. We see that clearly in 1 John 4, 19 through 23. It says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the redemptive story. God working through people to love people, to draw others to repentance and Christ's likeness so that one day Jesus will have for himself a bride bought with his own precious blood, pure and spotless from every tribe and every nation to worship and treasure him for eternity. That's what this book is about. So in closing, I want to close this, call us to a time of self-examination. How are you using the unique ways God has gifted you to strengthen the faith of fellow believers and encourage the faith in unbelievers? And it, it's not just a question for you to consider at this moment but I would challenge you to make it a question that begins and ends each day. You see, my experience is that there's two aspects of discipleship, that which is planned and that which is spontaneous. I challenge you to begin each day with a specific plan to encourage or build faith in someone that day. Maybe it's intentionally calling someone to meet for lunch and just or just talk by phone. Maybe it's as simple as sending someone an encouraging text or email. Maybe it's writing a post for the women's blog or serving someone in a very practical way. Maybe it's teaching a class or or making a meal with an encouraging note. If God has blessed you with a, with abundant financial resources, maybe you use it to support a ministry or or bless someone in need in the name of God. Maybe it's just simply taking time to pray with your spouse or kids. I mean, our first priority in using our gifts should be with our family, right? Hear me on this. Do not focus on encouraging the faith of others around you at the expense of building the faith of those in your own home. That is is your first ministry. And if you do it at the expense of them, it'll do nothing but cause resentment and bitterness within your home. And then when you have a plan for how you will intentionally use your gifts to build and encourage faith, then pray that God will make you sensitive to the numerous spontaneous opportunities throughout the day to let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When spontaneous opportunities arise to utilize your gift and build faith, you must not look at it as a distraction to executing your detailed schedule or completing your to-do list. We are so task-driven that we lose so many opportunities for the kingdom. And this I know, God did not give me and he did not give you the gift of life today so that you can complete a to-do list. He don't you don't have breath in your lungs so that you can pursue status, money, comfort or pleasure. You've been given air in your lungs and a pulse in your chest so that you might love God with all your soul, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and then make disciples by using your God-given gifts to encourage others to love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strengths. That is why we exist. Your primary occupation is not a manager or an engineer or a stay-at-home mom or anything that you do. Your primary occupation is a disciple-maker. Your career or job is simply how you provide for your family, and it provides a secondary venue for disciple-making. It's not your identity, and it shouldn't define you. Please hear me on this. To the degree that you really believe and live that out will parallel the degree that you will find deep satisfaction and peace and purpose in your life. And I double dog dare you to prove me wrong on that. You want to know a way that I found to finish your day? in the best possible way? When you lay your head on the pillow at night, fall asleep, ask yourselves these questions. Have I been a good memory in anyone's life today? Who did I encourage in their faith? Who did I challenge to flee from sin? Who did I share the gospel with? To whom was I, the hands and feet of Christ today? To whom did I reflect the love of God today? And then if you are still awake, drift off in reflection and thanksgiving for those in your life that day who did those things for you. If you can name one or more people on each side of that equation... I guarantee you, you will fall asleep with a peaceful satisfaction of a day well lived. So I want to close by simply reading 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11, which I think beautifully summarizes what we've talked about today. And I pray this is the prayer of each of our hearts. Above all, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.